are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. David Morgan, welcome to the Big Trade Series. I've actually been following a lot of the content that you've been producing for many, many years. I like to share a little story on how I got to know you, David, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. So I was, I'm actually Canadian and I was, it was, I think it was about the early 2000s, I believe about maybe 2003 or 2004. I um, found out that Warren Buffett was building a position of silver and he was at getting an average price of about $2 an ounce. And you were one of the prolific writers about silver at that time. And I decided to convince my friend to head over to Scotia Bank in Toronto, Canada. And that's one of the only places that you could actually find like the physical bullion at respectable prices to some extent. The physical bullion at uh, Scotia still has a little bit of a markup relative to the spot price. But, you know, I gathered all my savings and it became like one of the biggest investments that I made and actually became one of the more lucrative investments that I made. Thanks a lot to a lot of the things that you guys were writing about uh, in terms of silver. And even to this day, I have my friend's sister still has a massive position of, uh, I think they're the 10 ounces um, uh, little bars in her collection, and she's done quite well for herself by uh, listening to the, all this input. But I guess it's an interesting time right now because I've decided after all this time doing equities that I, I found uh, some kind of renewed curiosity for silver, and perhaps you could update the audience with some of that as well. Certainly. Uh, i just add on that a little bit. Buffett actually bought in the four to five dollar U.S. range. Okay. Another interesting thing about being Canadian was that at the time that it was in, let's say four dollars or four twenty or four forty or in the yeah. four dollar less than five dollar range, you could actually go in to a coin dealer and buy a silver maple that mm. is stamped five. Right. You talk about an arbitrage play. Anyone that was awake and aware, but there weren't many could actually walk into a coin dealer, buy Canadian maple that was stamped $5 legal tender that you could spend at that face value. It's legal tender. Mm. So you could walk in for, let's say, $4.40, and then you pay what, oh, I don't know, 25 cents a coin or something. So, you're, But you'd be buying, but it'd be a huge arbitrage opportunity. In other words, you're spending $4.70 to, to buy five, literally the old joke, you know, would you buy a $10 bill for you know, $8 and the right. answer is probably would. Did, <laughs> so did a lot of people do that? Do you know? Of no, a lot of people? no, no. Very few people were awake and aware enough to do that. Oh. This is what's so interesting about markets. People don't buy bottoms. Now what you just cited is one of the, you know, millionaires weren't even buying the bottoms. A few were, yeah. but very few billionaires were buying the bottom. Warren Buffett's purchase was on an inflation adjusted basis. The lowest price that silver had been in basically all of recorded history. Right. So you talk about a value investor. And what's also interesting, I don't want to just make this a Buffett show, but <laughs> it, you know, Buffett's well known for kind of bad-mouthing gold. 
you know, he's saying gold doesn't give you a return, there's no interest. There's lots of negativity out there surrounding Warren Buffett's comments on the gold market. Yet no one ever throws back at him. I get it, Warren, but why did you buy silver? No one ever asks that question in the public domain because he's actually done it twice. Uh, twice to that? the public's knowledge, anyway. In 1999, so, right? I believe was right. one time. Yeah, yeah. He tried to get a huge position in the silver market. I've written about that. I had a special Buffett report that I used to give away for free uh, when I was, you know, doing my lecture series. But that's great. Well, um, David, there's so there's a lot of analysts right now talking about like forecasts. I'm looking at uh, I got a, a Scotia Bank report in my hands right now, and just taking a look at what Macquarie has to say about silver. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about, um, you know, the price projections and the production of silver for the year 2016 so far? I'm going to give you a, a bigger picture than that, and I will answer your question. But sure. The first thing that really contemplate is, you know, money, money itself. And this okay. could be, you know, a three-hour lecture, but I'll try and be brief. The idea is that every so often, which is a rare event, there is a time in history slash monetary history where there is a huge upheaval in confidence. This is where the general public no longer trusts the power structure. So these are times when you have, you know, the fresh Ancenat that is, uh, you know, Marie Antoinette, the famous story, Let Them Eat Cake, where there's a revolt, basically. Because the paper system is not, or the money system is not trusted. And this, of course, happened in the Weimar Republic. It's the most recent one for, that's touted. But there's been, in our book, the Silver Manifesto, which goes to, there's been like hundreds just in the last uh, decade or so. But they're not really talked about because they're such, you know, minor countries or whatever. And almost all of those countries use the physical greenback or the physical U.S. dollar fractional reserve accounting unit denomination, that piece of paper, as their backup. So if you're in uh, Zimbabwe or you're in uh, one of these other, Argentina is a great example, you might use your Argentine peso, but your savings is in these green pieces of paper and everyone else's savings is in these green pieces of paper. So you have a de facto backup currency, even though your currency has failed. Mm -hmm. But if that backup currency fails, what happens? And this happens, again, very rarely, but this is the point where we are now approaching. In fact, you could argue it actually happened in 2008. And people say, well, you know, we had the financial crisis, but, you know, I still have my job and I'm still making my mortgage payment and, you know, everything is, you know, pretty good. And I would say certainly that's true. What people usually don't understand is what a cur currency crisis means relative to time. And what I'm trying to really instill into people's thinking and let them think it through for themselves is it's a process. Most people think when there is a crisis or a collapse, it means an instantaneous point in time where, you know, you wake up Sunday or you go to bed Sunday night, you wake up Monday morning and everything's changed drastically. All the banks are closed, you know, and everything stops. That isn't how it takes place. It usually, I mean, it's very rare that it takes place like that. It takes place as it unwinds slowly. It's sort of like rolling a ball 
you know, with all your might down the road. It takes a while. That ball will stop eventually when the momentum runs out. You know, the mass and velocity, eventually the energy you put behind it, there's no more energy. It'll stop. Sort of the same thing with the economy. So it's a process. So in 2008 is when the process began. The unraveling continues because you can't solve a debt problem with more debt. And that's the only thing that's been occurring. No real systemic change has taken place. No real regulations other than uh, regulations that are more impactful to the general public. You can't have a bailout anymore. The government won't bail out by on the backs of the taxpayers. They'll bail in because they're not allowed at law to bail out. So what that means is that if you hold a deposit in a bank at law, and it's been this way for a long time, that money is not yours, it's the bank's. You're actually a creditor to the bank. So if they decide there's another financial crisis, they can take 10%, 20 40 50 90% your whole bank account. No one knows exactly what the amount would be, but it's already been tried. The trial balloon has been performed. You know, the Cyprus event was sort of like the trial balloon situation to see how bad the public would react. And these things are very, very concerning. Now, I'm not trying to scare anyone. I'm, in fact, you should verify everything I say. But these are the times we're living in. So coming back full circle, what does that mean for the price of silver in 2016? Here's what it means. As more and more people realize that the powers that be really don't know what they're doing, really don't have that much control. In fact, they may actually be uh, of the mindset that they need to take the system down so that they can rebuild a new and better one. Regardless of what your philosophical view is, the metals will do better this year, but I don't think fantastic this year. Right. I think you're going to see strength in both the metals. I think you're going to see a lot more awareness, and I think it's going to be by the end of this year, it will be a point where most people that are even what I call sleepy will have awoken to the fact that things have changed in the monetary system so much that they need and you know they need to do something and that something for most people means some uh, type of you know some type of investment or savings or plan that they can implement that will protect them from uh, unforeseen circumstances in the not too distant future sure so um, yeah I'd love to go into with you about like the debt situation global debt at about 200 trillion dollars and I know that you've been uh, known to cite publicly that you think that this is going to continue to escalate for the next several years or so. But then when when you see all of these things happening, how does one come to the conclusion that based on all the opportunity costs that are available, I, I'm, I've been a big proponent of actually, and Jim Rogers is as well through my conversations with him, has been a big proponent of thinking about this in phases, perhaps accumulating some U.S. dollars that would be the first destination of a safe haven and potentially gradually evolving into hard assets like silver or gold. And I've also spoke a lot to Jim Rickards, which has been talking a lot about this new case of gold. Why, why would one consider silver as one of the ideal investment opportunities based on all the opportunity costs that are being presented to the audience and investors? Great. And I'll answer that, but I'm going to go a bit broader. Really, you need to start with like food and water. I mean, right. as you know, as um, perhaps radical as that sounds, you really want to have uh, some type of savings. And then I would, I'd agree with Jim. I would say, yeah, or the Jims. I don't know what Jim Rickard said it, but Jim Rogers. 
uh, yeah, start with the cash, you know, physical cash. I mean, if there's a bank problem, not necessarily bank run or, you know, electronics transfer problem or anything like that, having physical cash is probably the next most readily accepted by everybody, mm -hmm. recognized, no one's going to argue with you. And then I would go into silver first and gold next. And the reason being is that uh, even in uh, even in uh, Asia, as an example, it's a lower cost unit. In other words, an ounce of silver is you know one seventy fifth the price of an ounce of gold. But when I wrote the Ten Rules of Silver Investing, it was called the Global Investor Book of Investing Rules, which includes tactics, strategies, and insights relayed by one hundred and fifty of the world's most respected financial experts. They are revealed in a concise, digestible form. I was asked to write the rules of silver investing. And rule number one is, when all else fails, there is silver. And it reads the, as the following. No one likes to be a prophet of doom. But the simple truth is that silver is the world's money of last resort. Should a severe economic collapse occur, leaving paper assets worthless, silver will be the primary currency for, for purchase of goods and services. Gold will be a store of major wealth, what will be priced too high for day-to-day -day use. Thus, every investor should own some physical silver and store a portion of it where it's accessible in an emergency. Now, when I wrote that, it was probably 15 years ago, and we didn't have access to like BitGold, where you can use a debit card that's gold-backed, right. and I think at some point they'll make it silver-backed. I have a friend here in the uh, United States that has a debit card that's gold, silver, platinum, palladium backed. Right. Uh, there's one that uh, Peter Schiff has yeah. that I think if you're European, you can get it. So those weren't available at the time I wrote this, but it still applies, especially uh, there's nothing like, you know, physical metal chain, you know, going from hand to hand. So that's the idea. Gold certainly is uh, major wealth, more recognized, more mainstream, uh, banks have been major buyers of gold, even though they don't really talk about it. Right. And it reminds me of, you know, going back to the initial part of the conversation. And you talked about Warren Buffett. When Buffett bought, the ratio, the gold-silver ratio is about 80 to 1, which means it took 80 ounces of silver to buy one ounce of gold. And I was lecturing up in Vancouver, British Columbia at the gold show in January and almost everybody in the audience was gold centric and no one was really that silver centric. So what I said was, you know, if you really want to double your gold position for very little effort at all, what you really could do is take all of your gold right now and swap it into silver. And then when the ratio of silver to gold gets to say 40 to one, you can swap back all that silver that you really don't care for in the gold and you'll double the amount of gold that you have. And you know what? That happened. Hmm. Not that many people did it, but we're in a similar situation right now. People that are really in the know have swapped out their gold position or part of it anyway into silver because silver is starting to accelerate vis-a-vis -vis gold. People say, oh, the ratio doesn't mean anything. It means everything as far as which is performing better versus the other. If silver is outperforming gold or underperforming gold. Right. Silver has been underperforming gold during this five-year bear market. Now it's starting to outperform gold. The ratio got above 80 for a slight time. Many of us swapped our gold into silver or a portion of our gold into silver, and now the ratio is dropping. The ratio will probably drop to into the 30s, I think. It's already done it once to 35 or so. Mm -hmm. 
And when this unraveling continues and more people wake up to it and protect themselves with gold and or silver or both, you will find more and more people moving into silver because it's more affordable and it's a smaller market. So if you have more people coming into a market because it's more affordable and there's less of it available, then you're going to see the ratio narrow and narrow and narrow. And that's why I predicted that the gold-silver ratio could, I wouldn't say would, but could get back to what's called the classic or monetary ratio of 16 to 1. And in an extreme event, I think it could actually get to what's called the natural ratio, the way it comes out of the ground, which is roughly 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. So that would mean that silver would outperform gold by four or 500 percent. So, you know, $100,000 in gold would become, let's say, if it uh, tripled, would be um, 300000 But if it was in silver, it would be $1.5 million. Uh, now, those are a lot of uh, futures-looking statements. Uh, they're just ideas. It's the way silver has performed in the past, but obviously there's no guarantee for the future. What I teach is that you should have both. And depending on your age and your aggressiveness, the older you are, the more you should favor gold over silver. The younger and more aggressive you are and your ability to handle risk, if you can handle risk, then you would favor silver. So it's like we used to teach in the bond market back when bonds were actually worth something before they came worthless. The market just doesn't recognize how worthless they are yet. But you would take someone that's 70 and you'd have them 70% in bonds and 30% in equities. If someone was 30, you'd have them 70% in equities and 30% in bonds. Sort of the same idea. I think it's a good idea for people with a gold-silver ratio. I think if you're gold only, you're kind of missing the boat because silver is you know more volatile and moves faster. Mm-hmm. But I think to have silver only is basically a foolish move because unless you really got ice water in your veins, you can really handle risk. It's a little bit – it's too scary a ride for most people. David, how does um, platinum play into this equation? Because there's a lot of, um, you know, one could make a case that there is equally just as much um, industrial demand. There's a lot of nice underlining fundamentals. And then it still has that uh, precious metals um, component to it as well. I'm still a platinum fan. Uh, Actually, to be honest, and there's no reason I wouldn't be, but a little bit baffled that platinum has been at such a discount for as long as it's been this time. I mean, platinum is called the noble metal. It's 15 times rarer than gold. Mm -hmm. So if you just would use my argument of, you know, the natural ratio of silver and it might get there, I said might. I'm not saying it will. Mm -hmm. You could use that same thinking and say, well, why is the platinum, you know, 15 times more expensive than gold if it's 15 times rare? And and that's an argument against, you know, these natural ratios. I mean, a lot of people make that argument. I don't really make it that often because the market proves that it's really not that valid an argument. It does suggest that platinum is undervalued relative to gold. I believe that it is. Gold and platinum usually have a reverse, meaning that Platinum has a premium over gold. So you can apply the strategy I just outlined uh, into platinum and swap it for gold. The problem I'm having with platinum is I don't understand, again, why it's been at this place for so long, other than it's primarily thought of throughout the globe as an industrial metal only. And that's really not true. I mean, it's got all the classic properties that Aristotle outlined for money. You know, it's fungible, 
it's divisible, it's high unit value per unit, and all those things. All of the classic reasons that something is money, which are the precious metals, applies. But no one really uses it in that manner. So it's kind of got what silver has somewhat, which is its industrial use only. Mm -hmm. I would say if you're willing to take the risk that a small portion in platinum and or palladium, in fact, I like palladium a little bit more than platinum, Right. It would be worth it, but I don't want to misguide anyone. And I am concerned that we are in a situation where only the two precious metals are the primary monetary metals that have always been monetary metals. Gold and silver will be leading up uh, everything uh, against everything else. In other words, the commodities boom isn't coming back. Now, it may, and I'm not sure what Jim Rogers feels about that currently, but mm. I think we're in a position where we could see the metals moving up higher and higher while we really don't see much moving up across the board in the commodity sector, meaning the base metals, uh, copper, for instance, uh, and, uh, you know, cotton, cocoa. I mean, this demand that we've had driven primarily by China's growth is has subsided, and I don't think we'll reignite in a huge way. I think the monetary problems are so big that the run will be the run to gold. And as a result of that, running into silver as well. That will take platinum and palladium higher because they are subsets. And people will look and say, geez, I'd rather own you know, an ounce of platinum than an ounce of gold. It's 15 times rarer. And then the, the spread narrows because you know, there's a more of a demand for platinum as uh, an asset protector. And then you know, the platinum ratio gets narrower and it becomes more, you know, cost per ounce of gold, which I think will happen. But regardless, interesting times, think these things through, become educated. And I think one statement I, and I've been making this almost all the interviews now is we're in a precarious position on, on a, in the globe. I mean, it doesn't matter where you live on the planet. No one is really protected. The financial markets affect everyone. And money alone isn't the answer. I mean, if you go back into my history and not, you know, it's not about me, it's about the idea. But, you know, 20 years ago, the idea about financial freedom was freedom. I mean, if you had, you know, enough money, whatever that was for you individually, because, you know, some people are happy with one million, some people need 10, and I guess some think they need 100. But regardless, you know, whatever that number is, if you achieve that number, you were free. You could live where you wanted. You could do what you wanted. You could, you know, be greedy and, you know, just party all the time. Or you could, you know, give money away or start a foundation. Or There's all these options. In other words, you had true freedom. Today, financial freedom doesn't mean that. And the reason it doesn't mean that is there are too many other problems. There's too much corruption across the board. You have corruption in the political status across the board. You have corruption in the food supply, you have corruption in the air supply, you have corruption in the water supply, you have too much corruption across the board. So money alone doesn't give you all the choices and benefits it did, let's say, two decades ago. There's too many other things going on. So you really need to think through uh, a strategy that represents total uh, harmony on your basis, in other words, individual family, your friends and family, basically your community is how I would like to think of it. Not the lone wolf status of, well, me, 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 me. You know, you want to think about less about you and more about your community, your friends, family, and, and that type of thing. 
and what you could do or would do in the event that um, things start to unravel further. And I believe that they will. Not really doom and gloom. I'm a realist. This has happened before in history. I believe in the spirit of uh, of the human species. I think that uh, you know when the going gets tough, a lot of people rise up and are their best. Uh, some won't. Most will. And it's going to be a challenge. And I think a lot of people will make it to the other side, meaning that after the reset, we'll probably have a new value structure. Uh, money alone is certainly not the focus of your life. It's, or at least in my view, it shouldn't be. It's part of it. It's important. But just make it that a part of your life that's important. But really, it's about you know how you can be of maximum service to others and what you can do to better this world on an individual basis. And once you've done that, you become your best, then you can project that onto the world. This is the way really to live. And I didn't mean to make it a philosophical uh, lecture, but it's really what you need to, I think, stay balanced because there's so much going on so rapidly. The last Morgan report I did was really a test because there was so much that had happened in three weeks' time in the financial markets. And to cover it all and connect the dots was a real challenge. I did it uh, to the best of my ability. Thank you, David. Thanks for coming on to the Big Trade Series. My pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 